according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't want to teach spiritual gifts this morning. That was Sunday. Here we are, Sermon on the Mount. I even have a Bible this morning. It's not always guaranteed on a Wednesday morning. All right, before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer, preparing ourselves for the reception of God's truth, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves in your presence, thankful for your faithfulness to guide us in the truth. Rejoicing, Father, that we have this privilege and this opportunity. We do thank you, Father, for supplying a lampstand where the Word of God goes forth, line upon line, precept upon precept. We thank you for the abundant blessings you've supplied. And with that, the abundant testings. The testings are clearly increased, but we uh, recognize that it is not beyond our capacity because you supply the capacity. We thank you for that. We ask now for eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Leave. I need to set this on vibrate. There we go. I've yet to get caught with it. But three weeks ago, unbeknownst to anyone out there, I taught the whole Wednesday morning Bible class with this susceptible to ringing at any time. All right. Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So far, we've dealt with the Beatitudes. In chapter 5, followed by the similitudes. And last week we spent time dealing with the intensified kingdom law principles. In other words, Mosaic law was hard enough. The Mosaic law dealt with externals, overt sin, sins of the tongue, etc. Did not deal with the mental attitude sin behind overt sin. In other words, uh, Committing adultery as an overt sin was wrong. It violated Mosaic law, required uh, for animal sacrifice and so forth in order to be restored back to a ritual purity, to a clean, ritually clean circumstance where you could function in the assembly of Israel and so forth. Uh, kingdom law is going to intensify that. Kingdom law is going to add the mental attitude elements to the overt activities as being uh, judgeable offenses, as it were, offenses requiring sacrifices, offenses that need to be dealt with before a believer can function within the uh, the corporate body. And uh, hopefully, I don't think there's confusion on this, and there may be some, in which case uh, I don't mind answering questions. I'll try to reserve time at the end of class for some questions. Uh, but the, the aspect of ritual purity is not... Uh, don't confuse that with, with personal hygiene. Don't confuse that with any other kind of idea of being clean versus unclean. The idea is if you are clean, ritually clean, then you are able to function within the assembly. That is, when they gather together for their feasts, when they gather together for their observances, when they offer up sacrifices and so forth. If you are ritually unclean, then you are excluded from that uh, corporate body in, uh, in those functions. All right. Now, as far as the outline goes, we left off with, where did we leave off with? Point five or point six? Point seven? Point eight? Eight, okay. Our greater than pharisaical righteousness. And this is what really serves as the hinge in between chapter five and chapter six, is uh, 
these circumstances here. And, and the intensification of the law, when it incorporates the mental attitude aspect, summarizes it with this statement of perfection. The statement of perfection. That's what I gave you under main point six. The summary statement, our goal is the Father's perfection. Matthew 5.48, it's not just simply thou shalt be holy for I am holy, which is what was given under Mosaic law in Leviticus 19 and verse 2, but beyond simply holiness is every other aspect of the Father's perfection. Yes, his holiness is perfection. He is perfectly holy, but he's also perfectly righteous. He's also uh, perfect in every other way, perfect in his thinking, perfect in his purity. And so this perfection includes holiness, clearly, but so much more than just that one area of perfection. This is a totality. And the vocabulary there is teleos and a concept that we have had in the book of James lately where it is the testing of our faith that produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that is the process of why we go through our testings, why we go through our sufferings, and why Jesus Christ went through his sufferings. We were discussing this a moment ago, but it was well-pleasing to the Father to perfect the author of our salvation through sufferings. And he did learn obedience through the things which he suffered. And he was perfected by the uh, endurance of these things. Jesus Christ stands as the eternal and perfect uh, fulfillment of that James 1, 3 uh, principle. Now, chapter 6 continues the Sermon on the Mount with a practical message for believers to live their perfect life. And the perfect life is going to be an anonymous life. It's going to be a secret life, as it were, that you are serving in secret, as it were, and your father who sees in secret will repay. That you're not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing. You are not walking the Christian way of life so as to be noticed by men. And that's where we pick this up. Now, this is about a, a righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees. And I know I made comments on that as well. And uh, back in... Uh, Last week when we were dealing with this, and we'll look at it again here this morning. So point eight then, our greater than pharisaical righteousness. Our greater than pharisaical righteousness. And don't just slough that off as if it's an expression. That, that statement means a lot. Because pharisaical righteousness is pretty much the highest you could ever achieve through human, through human effort through the flesh, through humanity, through... Uh, there has never been a, a, a system, a legalistic system of human righteousness like Pharisaical Judaism. Even the, the, the perverted form of it that Rome tries to incorporate is, is... it pales compared to the Pharisaical righteousness. And that's why when Paul says, according to the righteousness which is found in the law, blameless, that was according to the Pharisaical standards, as it were. But ours is greater than the Pharisees. That is, ours is the imputed righteousness of God himself. We have God's righteousness, absolute, imputed to our account. Therefore, we have the greater than Pharisaical righteousness. Millennial saints, likewise, will have greater than Pharisaical righteousness. And uh, remember, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. And that is a true condition for the church age. But the reality of that also, when it gets applied to the kingdom age, is going to be important to recognize. Because they're saved by grace through faith, and yet they're put under kingdom law. So how are they going to try to fulfill that law? Well, they'll do so recognizing that he's the one that fulfills it. He's the one working in and through them for his good pleasure. And uh, hopefully this will all gel into place here for us this morning. All right. Now, 
The three main areas where this takes place are in giving, in prayer, and in alms. Or, I'm sorry, fasting. Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And we don't have to read. I mean, they're all similar. Because in reality, it's the same message with three applications. And we wouldn't really be limited to those three applications either. We can expand the applications. But three drives the point home. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. The quickest way to forfeit all heavenly reward, eternal reward, is to do so with the wrong motivations. The secret to laying up treasure in heaven is to, is to glorify Jesus Christ, be pleasing to the Father with the right motivations. And then whatever you do is laying up treasure in heaven. If your intent is to glorify Christ and please the Father, and you're doing so for His good pleasure, not to be noticed by men, you are laying up treasures in heaven. It doesn't matter if you're teaching a Bible class, teaching Sunday school, leading someone to Christ, or changing diapers in the nursery. Whatever you're doing, you're doing it as unto the Lord for the glory of God the Father. He sees in secret, He will repay. That's how you lay up treasure in heaven. All right. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. That is their intent. They're not doing it to glorify Jesus Christ. They're not doing it to please God the Father. They're doing it so that people will be impressed. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. And that statement is so powerful. The language even that's used there is a term, I didn't write it down, but it's a term that was employed in uh, commerce. Business practices in the in the first century, and, and we have examples of this in the Greek papyri. This term indicates a receipt, say, such as the kind my wife loves. You know, receipts. When you're a CPA, you thrive on receipts. All right, and what it means here is that they have been receipted for their reward. They have their reward. The receipt is issued. There is nothing further that will be coming, and the totality of what they get is whatever amount of human approbation they were successful in, in obtaining. That be, it becomes their reward. That is their reward. That's the totality of what they're going to get. And so, because that's the totality of it, there's nothing left. There's nothing that's going to come in heaven. There's nothing that's going to come from the Father. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. So if you're working to impress people, first of all, that's a fruitless thing to do anyway, but if that's what you're all about, then if you, if you are successful and you achieve your goal, that's what you've got. Impressing people. And uh, certainly uh, to consider it in these terms and to consider that you're throwing away an eternal value for something that's so fleeting is, uh, is quite frightening. Verse 3, But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Okay? Wonderful idiom, wonderful figure of speech, and a great way to describe that this is how secret it ought to be. This is how uh, low-key you should keep things. And is, is it a bit of hyperbole? Well, yeah, but that communicates. See, and clearly, if, if you're going to be so secret that your left hand can't even know what your right hand is doing, then that means, obviously, the person in the pew next to you shouldn't even know about it, right? That's why I appreciate the... Uh, the box of the back method rather than the passing the plate method just simply provides more increased avenues for anonymous giving. So that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
And this then becomes the principle. If you are interested in laying up treasure in heaven, if you are interested in, in the Father's reward, then this is the pattern. Now, as I mentioned before, we, we are drawing applications from this as general concepts and principles because we're in the church age. This, though, is going to be enforced. This is going to be a, an expectation of kingdom law. This will be enforced in the millennial kingdom. See? But we still recognize that the principles underlying it are, are such that they're, they're applicable in, in a variety of circumstances, an assortment of stewardships and so forth. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I didn't mean to say that turning the other cheek is wrong for church-age believers. It's not, I'm not saying that it's wrong, but we better recognize that it's primarily commanded to millennial believers, saints in the kingdom age that are subject to kingdom law. It's not mandated for us. We can still look at the concept and say, you know what, this pleases the Father, so we can make application today. But we're not under a mandate or a law. In other words, it's not a have to um, per se. Now, prayer is the second example, verses 5 through 8. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that it may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. The language is parallel. The concept is nearly identical. The idea of these public prayers that, to stand up and impress people by your eloquence, by how uh, godly you are and how uh, whatever, however it is you're trying to impress people with these long flowing prayers because you can use fancy theological terms and you can pray in all the depth of doctrinal understanding and, and you know other people look at you and they don't have a clue what you're talking about, but you sound, you sound brilliant and wow, I wish I could pray like that. Okay, It's not the purpose in prayer. To impress other people. And uh, they want to be noticed. They want to be seen. They want to be observed. And again the statement. They have the reward in full. They have received the receipt for their reward. There is no further reward to be issued. They have all that they're going to get. But you when you pray. Go into your inner room. That was the closet of Elizabethan English. Go into your closet and pray. Your inner room. Your private room. See. And uh, there is where you can truly wrestle with the angel. There is where you can uh, battle, as it were, with the Lord in prayer and, and, uh, and not let go until the answer is given. And all the other patterns that we have for persistent prayer. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, don't get buggy on this one. Some people do. And they say, well, there's never any appropriate place for public prayer, Ever. Never. I mean, you can pray in home, you can pray in your church, but when I'm out at a restaurant, I would never dream of praying for my food there because that's in public and somebody might see me. Now, wait a minute. Let's get some balance and let's understand what the application is on this. You know, now it's, it's entirely different. If you're seated at a table and your family's seated and the waitress brings the food and you have a moment of prayer, that's fine. As long as you're not standing up and announcing to the whole restaurant, look at us. We're praying for our lunch and, and you guys didn't pray. And, and then you start praying on and on about the godless waitress and whatever, you know, outfit she's wearing and everything else. And you're going on and on about all these the people at the table next to you, how they didn't pray and all kinds of other stuff. Obviously. That's the, the thrust here in, in terms of the public prayer that's become the spectacle in order to, to impress people with how holy you are, how godly you are. 
No, ours is a quiet walk, and the Father who sees in secret will repay. And I'm convinced that the most rewardable believers at the judgment seat of Christ are going to be those, those invisible heroes that never uh, were uh, observed in, uh, in this life, never were really observed, uh, the, the quiet prayer warriors and, and all the rest will have the greatest reward because they've made the greatest application in this, uh, in this realm. And likewise, fasting. Um, in between the prayer um, illustration and the fasting illustration, uh, which is in verses 16 and following, comes the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going to give that under a separate point. But before I do, let's just read 16 through 18 then. It's not accidental that this got inserted in between because we had giving, we had prayer, we have fasting, and that's the overall message. And then this this Lord's Prayer is inserted there after the admonitions of prayer that come in verses 5 through 8. So verse 16, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by man. All right. So not only are they fasting, but they've deliberately, deliberately, they, uh, they haven't washed their hair and they just, they're trying to look as ratty and nasty as they can. And so people look and say, are you okay? What's wrong with you? You know, right? Because your hair is a wreck and your face is filthy and everything else is like, you know, did you get beat up? What's going on? What's wrong with you? And then you have the opportunity to smile and get all pious and say, oh, no, no, I'm fasting. I'm suffering for Jesus. And, and, you know, believers that can use that as a mark of pride. And people will look at them and go, ooh, wow, okay? So don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face. So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There's no reason that any other human being needs to even know that you're doing it. Okay? And the, uh, you'll notice we have not departed from verse 1 in terms of the uh, underlying concept in verse 1, it says, Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And in verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Verse 20, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So we see that, it, that all of that teaching in between verse 1 and verse 19, that, that everything there in verses 2 through 18 served to illustrate, served to teach, but the underlying concept is laying up treasures in heaven, introduced in verse 1 and uh, summarized then in Verses 19 through 21, and we'll have a point on that here in a moment as well. All right. In a millennial context, in a millennial context, laying up treasures in heaven. Do we lay up treasures in heaven as church age believers? Of course we do. As a matter of fact, because we are the most heavenly oriented stewardship that's ever walked the earth, our citizenship is in heaven. Our inheritance is in heaven. Reserved, undefiled, will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. See, but this has a, uh, strictly speaking, a millennial application. All right, point nine, the Lord's Prayer, the so-called Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 9 through 15. I actually prefer to think of John 17 as the real Lord's Prayer, the great high priestly prayer that he offered interceding for his apostles uh, on the night in which he was betrayed. But this has been known as the Lord's Prayer ever since uh, the early church called, started calling it that. It's been publishing blurbed into pretty much every English Bible imaginable. All right. 
Matthew 6, 9 through 15 is actually the new disciples prayer. It establishes prayer principles for new believers to follow. So don't pray like the hypocrites. And uh, that's not the purpose for prayer. Uh, go into your inner room, it says in verse 6. This is a private matter when you're truly wrestling with the Lord. And by the way, this also doesn't address the corporate prayer of, of a local assembly either. This is strictly on an individual basis. And you, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. So we start to get, a, uh, as you see on the screen, the, the, the prayer principles for new believers. This is like prayer basics, as it were. Being able to teach a brand new believer, how do you pray? Well, start with this. But, you know, at some point, though, after you get accustomed to the idea of praying, you leave the memorized prayers and these things, and then you truly get into the status where you start wrestling with the Lord, where you start praying in your own, in your own vocabulary, in your own words, from your own soul, and so forth. And... Uh, and it's quite interesting. I've got a chaplain's aide right now in the Boy Scout troop who uh, I'm the chaplain for Troop 146, and this boy is the chaplain's aide. And uh, he prepares a prayer for every meeting. In fact, two prayers, an opening prayer and a closing prayer. And he's very diligent about, about all this. Uh, but he, uh, it's, it's different for me because uh, he actually writes everything out word for word, has them on these index cards, and then when it's time for him to pray, uh, he gets up there and we all bow our heads and close our eyes. Well, he, he keeps his eyes open because he's reading the he's reading the card, see, in a prepared prayer that he wrote out ahead of time. And now he's reading what was written out ahead of time. See, and, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's just different from what I'm accustomed to when you just kind of you go to prayer. and You don't even know what you're going to say before you start. But you're just praying and 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 um, praying extemporaneously, as it were, as opposed to a prepared pre-written text that you're actually reading from now so what am i saying with all that <laughs> i'm saying you can start with that but at some point you want to be able to grow beyond that and, and pray extemporaneously and and uh, as you're led and as things come up and as matters are uh, come to you as they're laid on your heart and so forth but this is not a bad way to start you start with these as principles and then you can when you develop these then you can branch off from there so the meaningless repetition, they suppose they will be heard for their many words. And that's different than the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanted to be heard and wanted to impress people. The Gentiles, though, they thought that if they just repeated it over and over and over and over again, then they're, uh, they'd finally get the message through to, uh, <laughs> to their God. See, and so if you want to illustrate that, go back to the prophets of Baal and how the hard time they had getting Baal's attention to call down fire on that, on that uh, offering there on Mount Carmel. Well, no, that's not what we do. Not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay? Prayer is not begging. Prayer is not begging. Going again and again and again saying, Oh, Father, please, 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 please. Right? Like an obnoxious child or something. You've already told them no once and they ask for it 55 more times. All right? That's not prayer. Your father knows what you need. He's waiting to be asked. And he provides. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. And so here's the pattern. Our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And um, we start with adoration before the heavenly father. Adoration before the heavenly father. When's the last time you told the father how much you loved him? 
how worthy He is. Adoration before the Heavenly Father. See, the immature believer forgets this. The carnal believer forgets this. We jump straight to the gimme, gimme, gimme prayers. Right? You know, um, I need more health. I need more money. I need a better husband. I need, you know, a better job. I need, you know, it's all about me, 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 me. Every prayer. Right? And you, you, some believers lie to themselves and convince themselves that they're truly interceding. But they're not really interceding for a loved one or whoever. They're, they're actually nagging through prayer. Say, you know, fix so-and-so. He's a jerk. And, Father, I pray that, you know, he'd quit being such a jerk. And I pray that he'd grow up. And I pray that he'd learn these lessons. And I pray blah, blah, blah. Well, wait a minute. Is that really interces- intercessory prayer? Anyway, before we get to any request, before we get to any provision, any petition, any supplication, the very first thing is to acknowledge the fact that he is God. The one with whom we have to do. We looked at that in Hebrews chapter 4 last Sunday. That we have no right to even be in the presence of His holiness. Other than the fact that His Son redeemed us and His righteousness is now imputed to us. And so it begins here with this uh, adoration. Hallowed be your name. Just go back. I won't take the time this morning, but just take a survey of many of the Psalms and notice how worshipful many of them were, how David was celebrating the glories of of Yahweh, the glories of the Lord, as a recognition of his worthiness. See, when we see angels praying in heaven in in Revelation chapter four and five, what are they praying? Worthy art thou. And they're 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 adoring the father and his worthiness. And then in chapter five, they adore the son and his worthiness. So adoration before the Heavenly Father. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We have anticipation of His coming kingdom. Anticipation of His coming kingdom. Again, this is just a pattern for baby prayers, but I think there are elements maybe that we overlook. Anticipation of His coming kingdom. Are we or are we not church-age saints that should be living daily with that imminent expectation of the Lord's return? We can hear the trumpet today. And I want to always be mindful of that in light of my prayer life. Because I don't want to lose heart. I don't want to be downcast. I don't want to be thinking that I'm faced with this test and I don't see any answers. and I don't see any hope. There doesn't appear to be any way out. And I'm wondering how much longer is this going to last? Well, if I've forgotten the fact that all those tests can end today. Because I can hear a trumpet at any moment. And then no more health test. No more financial test. No more marriage test. No more fill in the blank. It's game over when we hear the trumpet. See, and whether good or bad or in between, whatever we did, we're then accountable for at the judgment seat of Christ. So anticipating his coming kingdom. Now, our, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, I thought that the kingdom was already here. I thought the kingdom was already at hand. I thought this whole thing starting in chapter 5 was all about the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. All of this is about the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom law is about the kingdom of heaven. Why are believers in the millennial kingdom praying for your kingdom to come? Because there is a fullness of time that follows the millennial kingdom. 
And for believers that think the millennium is the end of everything and then we go into eternity future after that are failing to recognize that uh, your kingdom come, your will be done is uh, on earth as it is in heaven is a uh, prayer from the perspective of the millennial kingdom already being inaugurated. Can I have one more side trip? Hold your finger there. Go to Psalm 2. I think this is just as overlooked. Where are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Now, this is a millennial psalm. (laughs) Once again, we have Peter in the book of Acts telling us that this was fulfilled when uh, the uh, Gentiles crucified the Christ. He quotes one snippet of this verse here in uh, over, and I think it's Acts 4. But the bulk of this psalm is waiting for millennial fulfillment, just like Joel 2.28 is waiting for millennial fulfillment. And uh, once again, Peter's our culprit for citing an Old Testament passage and confusing people today as far as when do things get fulfilled. Because you'll notice, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. All right, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a Hebrew scholar. Just read verse 6. Where is Jesus Christ in the context of this psalm? He is seated upon the throne as king upon Zion. Has that happened yet? No, that's second advent. It hasn't happened yet. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Remember, the millennial kingdom is a rule of iron rod. It is a rule of enforced humility. The nations are not going to like being ruled from Jerusalem. Kings will choose more and more as the thousand years go by. They will choose to not go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And they uh, they'll face consequences because of that. They'll, be, they'll fall under immediate judgment. The rain will be shut off. But more and more that rebellion grows until such time as at the end with Gog and Magog and the rebellion there, Satan is released and they demand that uh, Jesus Christ step down. But the promise here, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession, is often overlooked that that's a passage that comes in a millennial context when Jesus Christ is already installed as king upon Zion, uh, God's holy mountain, it says. He's ruling on the throne of David as the son of David over the nation of Israel. And Israel has preeminence above the Gentile nations. But there is an even greater or more extensive inheritance to be given to the son, not just the son of David being given the nation of Israel, but the son of man being given all the nations, Jew and Gentile alike, given all the nations of the earth. That's the fullness of time. Okay, so as we study kingdom law in uh, and I'll draw a picture for you on this as we study kingdom law. And as we anticipate more and more things in the millennial realm, I might even reuse my picture from Sunday morning. I think I got thrown away. All right. 
as we study kingdom law and we study more things in the millennial realm, uh, cross, Pentecost, rapture, second advent, okay? Now, here's the millennium. It's a thousand years, and it ends. Everything is destroyed. Heavens and earth are destroyed. You have the great white throne. Now, the more we study here, and a lot of it comes in, in life of Christ. Because as Christ is being introduced, as the forerunner, as the herald is announcing him, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they don't know about first advent, second advent. Right? So they're teaching a lot of information that we understand to be millennial. We understand to be second advent. We understand that it takes place in here. But they're teaching it like it's right here. It's at hand. They don't know about this mystery called the church. They don't know about the mystery doctrine. Okay? So we're getting a lot of studies here on the millennium, but it's important that we start to identify some things because I think we've been so hurt. We're indebted to Schofield for a lot of things, but I think we've been hurt by this one aspect of Schofield's dispensational schematic is that he has the millennium followed by the great white throne followed by eternity future. And with no aspect of the fullness of times. Okay, from Ephesians 1, 10 and elsewhere. Because we start to get glimpses of your kingdom come. Whose kingdom is that? If it's the son speaking, whose kingdom is that? Ah, there we go. Is the millennium, is this, is this uh, the father's kingdom or is this the son's kingdom? It's the sons. It's Jesus Christ, the son of David, on the Davidic throne. Okay? There is a, a day coming in which, though Jesus Christ will start to uh, reveal more and more of the Father than he's ever done before, and that's when he accepts his title from Isaiah 11, Eternal Father, the Wonderful Counselor, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He's never yet accepted that title, Eternal Father, and functioned in that capacity. So when it says, your kingdom come, it's in a millennial time frame. And it's looking forward. Do you see that? From the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is in a millennial context looking forward. That's all I'm trying to get across this morning. Likewise, Psalm 2. Ask and I shall surely give you the ends of the earth as your possession. That is in a millennial context with the king seated upon the, the throne on Mount Zion. But looking forward to the ends of the earth and all the nations, Gentile nations being given to Jesus Christ as king. Okay. Here he reigns as the son of David on the throne over Israel. Here he will reign as the son of man as well as the son of David over the whole earth. All right. So adoration before the heavenly father anticipation of his coming kingdom. Now, for you and I, we're not looking forward to Israel's rewards. We're not looking forward to uh, those aspects necessarily. We're looking forward to a wedding feast. We're looking forward to the rapture calling us home. We're looking forward to the John 14 dwelling places where Jesus said, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you for I go to prepare a place for you. Where has he been for the last 2000 years? Hadn't been Jerusalem. It's been heaven. He's been in heaven. 
with his father, preparing a place for his bride, for the church. That's where we're going. That's what we anticipate on a daily basis. Thirdly, we assent to his will. Your will be done. Not ours. Far too many prayers are all about our will. What we want. Not about what do we want. It's about what does he want. Because if it was about what we want, we wouldn't take nearly any of the testings that he's given us. I know I wouldn't. Who wants that? That's why it says, run with endurance the race set before you. Assent to his will. Your will be done. And so I can pray in any circumstance, whatever it may be. Saying, Father, I'm faced with this. I don't like it. But you didn't ask me to like it. You asked me to take up my cross and follow. So that's what I'm doing. You uh, had a plan for giving me this test. So I'm not asking that you take it away. I'm not disagreeing with your wisdom. You know I need this test. And I want your plan to be accomplished in this test. Whatever it takes. Teach me the lessons I need to learn. And teach me quickly. (laughs) Because the longer it takes me to figure this out, what does that mean? The longer this test is going to drag on, right? Because now the moment I've learned every lesson I need to learn, is that test going to just drag on and on for no purpose? Of course not. God never does anything for no purpose. The purpose of his testing is to train, to equip, to teach us. Testing is instructive. So you want your test to go away? Defeat it. Endure. Win the test. Pass the test. Learn the lessons. That way you can move on to new lessons with more tests. All right. Assent to his will. But the the baby prayer that says, uh, you know, I have this and I don't like it. Take it away. Okay. You know, and, and it's hard. I admit this. Okay. It's hard. When you're in a prayer meeting and there's a something's going on and you're with, uh, you know, a sister in Christ and she's a, a God fearing woman and she loves the Lord, but she's got a grandson with cancer. OK, that's hard or a little baby born with a disease, a birth disease of some sort. or what. And, and you look at this and it's just hard and you want to right away. You want to say, Father, heal this cancer. Right. But. Is that, is that really a, a fair thing to pray? Because is he not the one that gave the cancer? Either by directive will or by permissive will. He either directed it to happen or he permitted it to happen. All right? And so because of that, what needs to happen now? This is my circumstance. I didn't ask for it, didn't want it, don't like it, but you've given it. And I have to consider this a part of every perfect thing, every good gift, every perfect gift bestowed, even though I may not like it. It's a perfect gift. It comes down from above, from the Father of lights. And so I say, Father, I don't know why you've given this to me, but it's obviously for my testing. I've got to learn something. In the case of a child, you ask, well, what's the child supposed to learn through all this? Maybe the child's not learning as much, but it's the parents that are learning a whole lot. Or other family members are learning a lot. Or church members are learning a lot. Other people have an opportunity to come alongside. So just the first gut reaction that says, boom, here's the test. You started this morning. Get rid of it. I don't want it. It's not a good prayer. Because there was a reason why he sent it. 
And until that purpose is accomplished, asking to remove it before it's accomplished is wrong. And Christ thought about it and said, what shall I say? Remove this cup from me? Not until it's accomplished. Okay. So, I mean, any, any attempt to get rid of a test before the test's completion, before the victory, before the, the conclusion that the Father designed, we'll get into that on tomorrow tonight in uh, 1 Corinthians. With the testing, he's provided the way of escape, the conclusion. So, assent to his will is vital in every test. We recognize that he had a purpose for allowing us to be tested in this way. Learn those lessons and come to his conclusion to the test. Give us this day our daily bread. Acceptance of his daily provision. Acceptance of his daily provision. I made all of these A's so we can remember them. All right. Acceptance of his daily provision. Means we are satisfied with his faithfulness. We don't grumble about what we don't have. But we are thankful for what he's provided. Which is all in grace. Acceptance of his daily provision. You know, manna was perfect. And they grumbled about it. <laughs> I mean, there it was. They'd wake up, they'd go out in the morning, just laying there all over the ground. Go get your food for this day. It's just laying there. Go get it. And it was perfect. It sustained them. I don't know what its uh, nutritional value must have been. It must have been perfect. I don't know that the USDA could have classified it, you know, could have told you that serving size and carbohydrates per calorie and, you know, the things we get on those warning labels and stuff. But it had 100% of their uh, daily recommended allowance of everything because God was providing for them. Acceptance of his daily provision. And it is daily. And it is uh, a reminder that each day that we even have breath to wake up with is, is a grace gift. Each day that we can get out of bed, we ought to be reminded that there's people who can't get out of bed this morning. And be thankful that we have uh, ambulatory, uh, ambulatory grace. How about that? <laughs> hey, I just came up with a classification of grace. I don't think the colonel's done yet. Ambulatory grace. Right? Because there's folks this morning that couldn't get out of bed. So acceptance of his daily provision. Awareness of his forgiveness. Awareness of his forgiveness. There's two problems with this. Believers fall short in two areas. And you can go either direction on this. Either way is a failure to acknowledge forgiveness. In some cases, believers continue to beat themselves up with all kinds of guilt and don't really feel, feel emotionally like they are forgiven. They still beat themselves up as if somehow, you know, we're sinners and we're unworthy and God's not going to hear my prayer anyway because I'm such a loser. And uh, we need to get out of that mentality. Awareness of forgiveness means just that. We've been forgiven. He's not holding any grudges. He's holding nothing against us. It says, let us ask of God who gives generously or liberally and without reproach. I think it's the King James says liberally there in James. And uh, without reproach. Because we're forgiven. 
There's nothing held against us. It is removed. And so that's one area where I think we can fall short in our awareness of his forgiveness. The other area is we get selfish and we think that forgiveness only applies to us and we're not willing to extend that to anybody else. <laughs> and that's right. I mean, we're forgiven, but we're not willing to forgive others because we've been hurt. We've been offended. We're holding a grudge as if somehow the offense was against us to begin with. It never is. All sin is against God. He is, he is the one with the absolute unchanging standard of righteousness. I can be sinned against. I can be injured. I can be offended. But ultimately, it's not my standard of righteousness being defied. It's his. And Jesus Christ hung on the cross for all those sins like he hung on the cross for my sins. So the forgiveness should be there. And, it, and when it says, forgive us our debts, even as we forgive others. Now, this is a verse that really causes folks to get worked up into a bind. Um, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Because uh, it, it almost shows or does, it shows a conditional forgiveness in, on an experiential basis. See, and we have problems with that if we approach it from a church age standpoint. Right. Because, you know, we we're forgiven. We're saved. We're forgiven. We confess. We're forgiven. If we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This, though, seems to add a stipulation that our forgiveness is uh, proportionate or in a um, in a in a relationship to the forgiveness we extend to others. That as it says in verse 12, forgive us our debts as to the same degree, in proportion, in the same manner, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So that if I am not willing to extend forgiveness to others, I won't get forgiven. And see, verse 14 and 15 amplifies this even. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. All right, so that causes people to get worked up about it and say, well, wait a minute. This sounds like conditions for forgiveness, okay? First of all, know the context in a millennial application. Know the context in terms of uh, what forgiveness is for ritual purity and cleanliness, restoration to the assembly. And also, I would even say it goes alongside with what we've previously had in chapter 5, where if you have anger against your brother... And it says, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and, they remember, and, and that's verse 23 of Matthew 5. If you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Okay? These are stipulations and conditions that will become more uh, apparent when the worship system of the millennial kingdom is is revealed we have a hard time relating to that now none of us arrived here this morning with a goat okay you might have arrived with a child you might have arrived with uh something else a bible you arrived with uh, a notebook you arrived with a briefcase whatever you walked in with no one walked in with a goat or a sheep or a lamb or a bird or any other such thing okay we're going to stop to consider what the ritual is going to be like in the millennial kingdom with not only animal sacrifices, but uh, ritual purity, purification, 
the necessity for either a clean or an unclean condition. Okay? And that's simply, if you haven't read Leviticus in a while, that's, that's the ritual cleanliness for participating with the saints, with the corporate body of Israel and worshiping God. Okay? And if you've had a baby, forget it. You're unclean until a period of time has gone by. A certain amount for boys, twice that for girls. Okay? Or uh, women on their menstrual cycle. Or uh, if you've touched a dead body. See, you can't help it. Your uh, family member died. You went out. You buried him. Well, guess what? You're ritually unclean until you go through that purification process, excluded from the solemn assembly. And so this forgiveness aspect here, I don't think you can separate it from the uh, aspects of the solemn assembly, and I don't think you can separate it from the um, from the context of the, the uh, that aspect of forgiveness. Also, I should point out, by the way, I can reconcile this very well with First John one nine without any trouble, because if you have, if you have not forgiven others, in verse fifteen, if, if that condition is true, let's assume for the moment it's true. You have not forgiven others. You've got some kind of anger. You've got guilt or anger or selfishness or whatever. You've got something against somebody and you have not forgiven them. How do you confess? Right? If you've got, let's say you commit seven sins and you know you've done them and you're only willing to confess one of them, are you restored to fellowship? When you've deliberately not confessed the other ones and you know you've done them? Okay? And so, uh, you know, a, a confession where you, where you only partly confess and you hold back another part and don't confess it, that's not confession. Because confession is homologeo, it's agreement, it's to say the same thing as, to have the same mind as. Okay? And by the way, confession is not admission. See, you can't just say, uh, you know, Lord, I, I got angry and I... And I I uh, I punched the uh, the whoever right. Um, the waiter spilled soup on my lap and I got angry and I socked him. Okay. I'm making this all up. This has never happened. And now now <laughs> it's not a confession if you, you're not in agreement. How will I go? If you're not saying the same thing God is, if you don't have the same attitude God has towards it. In other words, if you liked it and you intend to do it again, it's not confession. It's not confession. That's why it was always rebound and move on, rebound and follow through. You confess, you isolate, and you stop doing it. Jesus says, go and sin no more. But, you know, if you've done a sin... And you did it yesterday, the day before, you did it today, you have every intention of doing it again tomorrow and the next day after that. Don't think that you can just go ahead and in prayer just mouth some words as some kind of an incantation or spell or some kind of uh, ritual formula where you can say, uh, you know, dear Heavenly Father, I confess to you my such and such and I claim the forgiveness and blah, 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 in Jesus' name, amen. Is that confession? You mouth the words and you made an admission. But I don't think by definition of homologeo, you've made a confession. And so this aspect of forgiveness, which appears to be conditional upon our forgiveness, really isn't when it comes down to what the aspect is of true confession. 
that has to have the same mindset. Remember, in the kingdom law, the mental attitude is being just as accountable as the overt activity is. Then finally, abstinence from evil. How this prayer concludes. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Disputed text. All right. The uh, abstinence from evil. I want to have nothing to do with it. I want to flee from it. I want to flee from all forms of idolatry. I want to flee from all forms of evil. I want to abstain from every appearance of evil. Even if I'm not partaking in the activity, I don't want it to be named among me. Because even if it's not true, if I've given grounds for accusation, then slander can run with it as if it was true. See? And in uh, the different things there. You know, pastors that get themselves in trouble, and even when they don't do anything wrong, not, they've done nothing wrong, but they've left it open for an appearance that maybe something's wrong. Say. And then tongues start wagging, the slander starts working, and then it becomes all the more believable because there's an apparent appearance there. There's a reason to question, reason to doubt. And even though love believes all things, a little carnal mind comes along and says, hmm, maybe that is true. See? All right. Our heart should be focused on heaven where our treasure is stored up. Our heart should be focused on heaven where our treasure is stored up. Verses 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Does that mean that um, it's wrong to have any kind of savings? It's wrong to have any kind of wealth? It's wrong to have anything um, uh, saved? Pack rats would have a hard time with this verse. No, but it says, in contrast, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And, and the language here, this is a, this is a, a uh, grammatical feature uh, where we're giving opposites. We're going to extremes in order to make the point. It's like hating your father and mother as a demonstration that you love the Lord. Okay? Does that mean that I have to hate my father and mother? Does that mean God expects me to hate them and not talk to them and ignore them? And No, it doesn't. But it means that when I'm going to put those two things in a side-by-side comparison, there is no comparison. I have to recognize that this one is infinitely more important. Okay? Whether, you know, so treasures on earth, treasures in heaven. There's a place for savings. There's a place for, for that. But recognize it for what it is. It's passing and even when you're careful with it, it can it can go thieves and rust and everything else. You think you've got insurance and then something hits you and you're not insured for it or whatever. Okay. Uh, So when putting earthly wealth and heavenly wealth side by side, there is no comparison. The one is infinitely a greater priority. And so because of that, the uh, language that's employed to describe these two is the language of extreme so it says, don't even do it at all. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Ever. Okay? And that's the language of extreme, like when it says, unless you hate your father and your mother. It's the language of extreme, showing that you love Jesus Christ. Okay? We'll get to that text as well. That's uh, 
And that's uh, another one of the messages of Jesus Christ I think people wrestle with. And they don't understand the literary uh, feature that's being employed there. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Notice, people claim that verse a lot to say, hey, if I've laid it up, it's there. It's there eternally. It's there forever. I can't ever lose it. Not what that verse says. Thieves can't get to it. Rust can't get to it. But the uh, heavenly banker is still there. And if you're forfeiting rewards, if you're letting someone take your crown, then, uh, then uh, he can certainly deduct from these accounts. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And establishing the priority, where our heart's supposed to be. How much time do we spend accumulating earthly wealth? How much time do we spend accumulating heavenly wealth? And I'm just asking that as a general question. I'm not saying that if you work 40 hours a week at a secular career, that you have to work 41 hours a week uh, studying the Bible and, and learning God's Word. Okay? But I have heard and read about believers that have taken that as a, as a, as a principle, have taken that as a point of application. That, in fact, have even cut down to 30 hours a week, 20 hours a week in the, in the workaday world and are, have increased their um, laying up treasure in heaven time. And they just got convicted of that as a matter of time. See, other believers get convicted on other things in terms of their giving, for example. They know that we don't have a have to, we don't have a tithe, we don't have to give a certain amount. But they start examining some things and they see that, you know, they look back over the year and uh, they see that, oh, they gave uh, whatever, a certain amount of money to the Lord, to the church for the support of the ministry. And they look at it, whatever it was. Maybe they gave $100, $500, whatever they gave, $1,000, whatever they gave for the year, okay? And they look at that and they, they, they gave $100 to, to the church over the span of a year. But their budget for bowling was $500. Or their budget for golf was $1,000. Or whatever their hobby is, their pursuit is, and so forth. Now, am I going to tell anybody they can't have those pursuits? They can't have those hobbies? No, not at all. You can have whatever hobby you want to have. You can be a underwater basket weaver for all. I don't care. It doesn't matter. I don't care. Whatever you want to pursue. But if you're if you're the if you're pouring money into this hobby, more so than it's just a question believers are going to have to ask. And when the Lord asked Peter, "Do you love me more than these?" What was he really saying there? Anyway, things to think about. Um, kind of ended with a side trip there. We uh, but where are our. our uh, treasure is where our hearts focus that's what we're gonna that's what we're gonna support and and folks that say well i don't have time uh, no you're not making the time you will find time for that which you want to do you will find time for that which your heart desires where your treasure is there your heart will be also all right we've got through 10 of these points there are eight more remaining and then that'll take us through the rest of chapter six and into chapter seven and uh lord willing i uh, will come back next week Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. And Father, I pray for diligence in understanding these principles, that we might glorify our Savior, be pleasing to you. We might learn what it means to, to serve in secret so that you can see in secret and repay. I just thank you for all your faithfulness in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.